Hello, welcome to part two of our discussion of the Office of Inspector General's strategic plan for managed care and how that plan highlights recent regulatory and enforcement actions in the managed care space. My name is Devin Cohen. I'm a healthcare partner at Ropes and Gray. And with me today is Andrew O'Connor, a partner in our litigation and enforcement practice group. On our last podcast, we spoke about the first two phases of the managed care life cycle, plan establishment and enrollment, and associated enforcement and regulatory actions. To recap, we discussed how providing inaccurate information to CMS during plan establishment or the bid process can improperly inflate payments in a way that OIG has been focusing on, as well as the risks related to aggressive marketing tactics that might be untruthful or deceptive. This week, we will discuss the final two stages of the lifecycle payment and services to people. Andrew, why don't you take it away? Thanks, Devin. Good to be back. So the third phase of the managed care lifecycle that OIG focuses on is the payment stage. And candidly, this is where we've seen the most DOJ attention in terms of recent enforcement actions. And it's during the payment phase that the federal government's financial risk uh, really is related to capitation payments, especially those based on risk adjustment. Now, as you may know, risk adjustment provides higher payments to plans for individuals who are sicker and require more care to ensure that the costs to the MAO are being covered. Now, given that financial incentive, OIG has expressed concerns over the years about incentives on the part of plans to overstate the conditions that enrollees might have in order to take advantage of higher reimbursement rates. And so what OIG is reiterating here is that compliance organizations within the MAOs really ought to be laser focused on ensuring the accuracy of, of risk adjustments and, and medical loss ratios and the other value-based care um, mechanisms that feed into the payment process. OIG has also said that it will continue to investigate overlap between providers who they believe are engaging in problematic behavior in the fee-for-service world, um, who also are providing services through managed care networks. So Devin, this is another area, especially uh, with respect to risk adjustment, where we're seeing a lot of enforcement activity. I, th I think that's right. And it comes really on the tail of the settlement in USV Cigna Corp for $172 million this past fall. Here, Cigna affiliated plans contracted at a fixed fee with vendor healthcare providers to conduct home visits as part of Cigna's 360 comprehensive assessment. Based on each visit, the vendor healthcare professional completed a Cigna created form to document a wide range of medical conditions. And Cigna's coding team then identified the diagnosis codes that correspond to the reported conditions and submitted to CMS for risk adjustment purposes. In doing, Cigna identified 12 classes of generic chronic diagnoses viewed as often underdiagnosed, for example, and through trainings and seminars, allegedly encouraged the vendor healthcare practitioners to make these diagnoses. This alleged use of vendors to systematically add diagnoses for risk adjustment purposes in order to receive higher payments, particularly without a review of codes that might need to be removed from a record for inaccuracy, is exactly the sort of behavior that the strategic plan hopes to address. And as a result, Cigna and DOJ entered into a five-year corporate integrity agreement with the Department of Health and Human Services and its OIG. 
Yeah, Devin, and that corporate integrity agreement includes a number of accountability and auditing provisions uh, that focus on the importance of substantiating diagnosis codes with medical record documentation. And not surprisingly, this is an area where OIG says compliance departments should be focused, making sure that uh, the medical record documentation adheres to ICD-10 requirements so that coders can really readily identify whether diagnoses are are consistent with with the documentation and and adequate clinical evaluation needed to underlie those diagnoses. Now, the government did not pursue any vendors in the Cigna case, but I, I will say that we're seeing increased focus on the part of vendors who are involved in uh, in some of these kinds of reviews on the compliance concerns uh, that o- OIG has mentioned here, because there certainly is a possibility uh, that uh, DOJ may may turn its attention. To, to those who are actually uh, involved in, in the process of um, adding diagnoses, for example, uh, in addition to focusing on the MAOs who ultimately benefit. All right, now we're on to the fourth and final phase uh, that OIG laid out in its recent guidance, and that has to do with risk around the provision of care. And when it comes to providing care, OIG is really focused on ensuring that patients are getting the care they need. Various commentators and oversight agencies have expressed concern uh, over the years about the incentives that uh, managed care provides that might incentivize uh, plans to undertreat patients. They're very concerned about barriers to to care that that patients actually need, and they want to ensure that while the care provided is is done so in a cost-effective way, that patients are still able to get the kind of care they they expect and and deserve. And here, historically, OIG has focused on uh, things like prior authorization restrictions. And so it's it's not uh, surprising to see this new guidance uh, continue that focus, uh, not just on on prior authorization, but also on uh, efforts to ensure network adequacy, to identify and weed out problematic providers within the network, to making sure that the coverage determinations are are accurate and consistent with the plan guidelines, and 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 just ensuring that enrollees are are receiving the care that that uh, meets industry standard. OIG has has also addressed this point uh, in the the recent final rule, um, which actually lays out several specific requirements uh, relating to prior authorizations in particular. And, and I think it's worth just just highlighting those. So under the recent rule, the coordinated care plan prior authorizations uh, can only be used to confirm the presence of, of diagnoses or medical criteria um, that ensure that an item or service is medically necessary. That's the purpose, number one. Number two, um, coordinated care plans must provide a minimum 90-day transition period when an enrollee currently undergoing treatment switches to a new MA plan. And and during that 90-day period, the MA plan may not require prior authorization uh, for the active course of treatment. Third, 
Medicare Advantage plans must establish a utilization management committee to review policies annually and ensure consistency with traditional Medicare's national and local coverage determinations and guidelines. Finally, approval of prior authorization requests for a course of treatment uh, must be valid for as long as the treatment is medically reasonable and necessary to avoid any inappropriate disruptions in the patient's care. And those specific regulatory requirements around prior authorizations and the OIG's focus in its recent guidance on the provision of care really underscore the the desire on the part of, of the U.S. government oversight agencies to ensure that plans are not putting up uh, artificial roadblocks to to reduce uh, the the kinds of care that that patients uh, need uh, medically, um, but but may uh, accrue additional cost to the plan. So that that's another area where I think DOJ in particular, uh, where it sees issues, tends to be very energetic um, in in pursuing potential action. Devin. Yeah, and and I think the prior authorization implications will also have a ripple effect with the providers that are delivering the care and what's going to be in their contracts, particularly the participating provider agreement between those providers and the Medicare Advantage plan. Look, there will likely be fewer prior authorization requirements in these agreements moving forward and in the provider manuals related to them. That That's not unexpected, but providers should also expect, I think, for ancillary results of these adjustments, more expansive on-site audits, more expansive requirements for electronic submissions for audits, as well as circumstances where the plan may try to claw back certain amounts of payments if as a result of extrapolation or risk adjustment, um, a provider's record causes the plan to have additional claims clawed back um, and additional repayments. The role of the primary care physician here really becomes key as the gatekeeper to limit costs on behalf of these plans, but also ensure that the patients are receiving medically necessary services. Now, the OIG and DOJ's continued scrutiny on fraud and abuse risks in managed care, it follows ongoing industry discussions on best practices for mitigating false claims at risk through compliance safeguards. It's clear that the agency believes sufficient programmatic safeguards are required to ensure that plans are not submitting claims with reckless disregard or otherwise under the False Claims Act. Now, in light of the strategic plan and ongoing enforcement trends identifying potentially suspect plan, provider, vendor conduct, many in the market are shifting to a more proactive approach to monitoring and oversight, particularly with respect to auditing provider records to satisfy OIG and DOJ expectations for an effective compliance program. While those continue to evolve, we do understand and we appreciate the ongoing need for an effective compliance program in the event of defense against the False Claims Act allegation. Thanks, Devin. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you found today's conversation to be useful, check out Ropes and Gray's other podcasts. You can subscribe now wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. Thanks again for listening.